First of all, welcome to the new summer quarter. Um, this Sunday, will obviously it'll begin that, and uh, and we'll be going through the book of Esther uh, in this auditorium class. Um, I know there's a lot of other classes happening, a lot of interesting ones, especially one taught by or being t- uh, taught by the likes of uh, great. Neil Pollard and Hiram Kemp. So, uh, really appreciate you guys for choosing this class and 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 coming to to hear me ramble about this book. But there's a lot to unpack in Esther. The story is not overly complicated, but it is a wonderful book, um, and there's a, a lot to discuss about it. Um, so today we'll kind of treat this as. Uh, more or less like a uh, syllabus day, if you remember back in your college days. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I just recently graduated uh, from Free Hartman University last summer. Uh, so th- those syllabus days, you know, the first days in class, uh, fresh on my mind, where you didn't go into the material or anything like that, and just the professors uh, gave you a syllabus and you just went home <laughs> afterwards. So today. We're not going to dive into the book itself quite yet. Uh, we'll do that next week. Um, but there are some things about the book itself uh, that I would like for us to uh, discuss a little bit. Um, one of the things that uh, I would like us to keep in mind with the book of Esther, um, and really... Uh, as you study any book of the Bible, um, is it's sometimes challenging for us when we're thinking about the books of the Bible uh, apologetically, right? It's sometimes challenging because some, some certain books in the Bible uh, have a lot of manuscripts, have a lot of uh, archaeological support and all that kind of stuff where we can... With, I mean, I don't want to say 100% certainty because we, none of the books we have uh, the uh, the autograph for, uh, which basically means the original copies of these books. But nevertheless, there are a lot of evidence that points to certain books. We can have a, a good degree of certainty for the legitimacy and the validity of of these books of the Bible. But some, uh, they have varying degrees of these things. And when we look at these books. It can be challenging for us. Now, we believe that the Bible is infallible. We believe that the, the Word of God is infallible, and it is perfect, right? Uh, some of these things that, that we look at that are challenging are just due to human error, just the fact that these are written in human language, and that is imperfect. But God's Word is imperfect. So we know that. However, when we look at some of these, it can be challenging. There can be some questions, right? I have found out 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously very young. Uh, some of you may have done a much more, a lot more study of all of these books of the Bible than I have maybe even uh, been alive on this earth. But uh, I think we can all agree that if we're honest about these challenges and face them head on with faith, uh, with honesty, and with zeal, it'll be much better than if we just you know, stuck our heads in the sand and just ignored it. Uh, now, maybe this is all kind of going all the way over your heads, and, and you might be thinking, what is this guy talking about? So we'll, we'll kind of go into it and talk about uh, the book itself before we even dive into the actual text of Esther. Uh, by the way, this class is titled Esther for such a time as this. I'm very excited uh, for us to uh, look at the text and and glean some uh, lessons from this book. I think it's very applicable to the modern Christian, uh, but we'll talk more about that too. Is this on? <laughs> uh, I'm pressing the button, but there we go. All right. Okay, so Esther is a very interesting book, um, and there are some points of interest that I would like us to kind of be aware of as we go into uh, talking about Esther. Um, there are some points up there, but real quick, uh, Esther is obviously, as you know, if you have read the book, it's a post-exilic story which basically means that the story of Esther takes place after the exiles, the Babylonian exile, the the Persian exile. This is during the time uh, about a century or so after the initial Babylonian exile where Israelites were taken away from their homeland uh, into these foreign lands. Um, Esther is a post-exilic story, and it takes place during the uh, Persian Empire, right? Now, most focus uh, on and we know of uh, the Israelites that return home in books like Ezra and Nehemiah, right? And we we like to put a lot of focus on that, but what we don't uh, or what we often forget or neglect is the reality that a lot of the Jews in this post-exilic period during the the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when some of these Israelites were going back to their homeland was that a lot of these Jews actually stayed dispersed throughout the Persian Empire, right? Not all of them, not 100% of the Jews returned back to their homeland. In fact, Esther and Mordecai are prime examples, and we will see their story in the book of Esther. They're prime examples of these Jews who were who stayed in exile. Now, they weren't exiled as in the sense of, you know, they were enslaved or anything like that uh, at this point, but they were not in their homeland. They were dispersed throughout the, the foreign lands uh, within the, the Persian Empire, um, and their lives more or less were assimilated into these foreign cultures. Now, they will hold on to their Jewish identities. Right, in terms of religion and ethnicity, and we will explore that too uh, as we go through the book of Esther. But nevertheless, we have to remember that there are some 
there, there are a lot, actually, of Jews. The majority of the Jews actually did not go back home. Right? They chose to stay. Um, and so that is a very interesting, I think, uh, a reality of um, the book of Esther that, that sometimes we kind of put in the, in the back burner. Right? We think about Ezra and Nehemiah and the rebuilding right, and all that stuff. But we sometimes forget that a lot of Jews actually remained uh, in dispersion, uh, dispersed around the Persian Empire after the return. So that's one point of interest. Another one, and this is uh, up on the PowerPoint, uh, Esther is actually one of two books in the Bible that does not mention God at all in its text. Do we know what the other one is? The other book of the Bible the second one that does not have the name of God in it. Song of Solomon's does not mention God either. But nevertheless, um, the what we pronounce as Yahweh, right? The uh, Y H W A, the, the Tetragrammaton, uh, as it is called, it is dubbed. It does not appear in the Book of Esther at all, not even once. Uh, and so even during the uh, development of uh, the, the Hebrew canon, Esther was kind of under fire, right? Even among uh, Jewish scholars, right? Mainly because of the, uh, the lack of the name of God in its text, right? And there are other extra biblical supports that Esther is kind of lacking in uh, that people, will, skeptics of the book will argue uh, to support their claim of Esther is probably a fictional, historical fictional book, right? Esther is uh, probably a, not, not a historical story. Um, Esther is probably some kind of an ap- apocryphal work and does not really belong in uh, the main canon, right? Uh, and another point of interest is that if you read in the story of Esther, if you're familiar with the story, you know that towards the end of the book, after the resolution of the conflict, which I will not spoil um, just yet, uh, but after the conflict is uh, resolved, we see a development of a certain feast, right? A Jewish feast. Uh, By the way, that feast is the Purim, and the Jews still uh, celebrate this feast. Um, it is a holiday for them. Now, some scholars, some skeptics of the book argue that, hey, maybe because, you know, uh, God is absent in this book and, and there are some other uh, uh, difficulties in reconciling Esther with history, maybe this book is an apocryphal work that was developed way later on, right, not, not during or, or in vicinity to the exilic period or post-exilic period, but way later on, centuries after, to justify the Feast of Purim. Right? So that is a prevailing theory among skeptics, is that Esther was a book that was written primarily to basically give credence to this Feast of Purim. It's sort of an origin story, right, if you're a comic book reader for the the Feast of Purim. So those are some points of uh, interest for Esther. And that's what I was uh, mentioning with 
with Esther that there are these challenges uh, that skeptics uh, bring up about Esther, and there are these difficulties that we have to wrestle with, right? Um, it's okay to go throughout all our lives and to have, you know, a perfect and solid faith in all of these books, and that's great. That is the end goal, but the reality is sometimes there are these difficulties and challenges, and I think it's much, in my personal humble opinion, I think it's much more uh, effective for us in apologetics and things like that to challenge or to take on these challenges head on and to discuss it with honesty. Um, so that, that's what I want to do today. So indeed, Esther does not mention God at all in its book or in its text. Um, and it is true that there are some difficulties in reconciling the events of the book with historical records. Right? It's not like we have a, a, a well-preserved book from that time period that says, hey, the events of Esther happened and we can verify it. We don't have that right now. Um, that These are current realities uh, of uh, surrounding Esther. is true. But do these current realities justify the dismissal of Esther as a canonic book of the Old Testament? I want to talk about that. What possible lessons can we learn from such a book that is so doubted and that is so challenged by skeptics? One that doesn't even mention God. Any thoughts? I think I think you bring up an interesting point. Uh, whether or not God is there working, and whether or not these books that so many people doubt and are skeptical about are true or not, that is on them. God works nonetheless. God uh, ordained these uh, books and, and these texts and preserved them through whatever means he, he saw fit. That will remain true. Whether or not we have archaeological support, whether or not we have... Uh, quote-unquote, evidences, and we'll look at some of these arguments, too, and kind of break them down. That's true. God works, nonetheless. Yes? So, one of our, I mean, one, one of the best arguments or, um, or thoughts with Esther that I can think of is, and, and I'll mention this later, too, is we ought to focus on whether or not the story of Esther fits uh, and is harmonious with the rest of the story of God in the Bible because there are other texts that are much more uh, credible, so to speak, right, to these skeptics because there are more archaeological or uh, other extra-biblical records and evidences. Whether or not this message is harmonious to those other books is much more important than what limited knowledge we have on this book or we don't. So we'll kind of go into some of that. Uh, but that word is what I want to focus on and, and what I want all, all of us to have in mind as we uh, kind of take this book head on is this idea of humility. Humans hate not knowing, right? We don't like not having evidence. We don't like not being 
100% sure of something. We just don't like uncertainty. And that is just a human characteristic. That is our nature. right? And it is something that we have to uh, not necessarily fight, but we have to wrestle with this, with certain things. Um, especially when it comes to uh, these kinds of books that are uh, highly contended. And, and there are a lot of skeptics who theorize certain things about these books. It's important all the more for us to have humility and, and to understand and to acknowledge that sometimes we just don't have all the answers. But that does not mean that we need to be unfaithful or that does not mean that we need to become one of those skeptics for these books. So um, Esther I believe, teaches us a lesson of humility. Even before we dive into the book, we dive into the the actual story of Esther, which, by the way, I would argue there's a lot of humility to be learned from the story of Esther and her actions. But before we even read the story, the book itself provides us with this great lesson of humility. It is easy for us in our present time to look back thousands and thousands and thousands of years and, and, and to, to look at these ancient texts and criticize them and, and question their place uh, in the biblical canon. Now, I'm, what I'm saying is not, you know, we, shouldn't, we should have just total blind faith and, and we shouldn't, you know, think critically about these things. I'm not an opponent of critical thinking. But at the same time, if we're going to do this, we have to do it with utmost care and humility. We can't go into it thinking we will be able to have all the answers and therefore we will be able to make definitive claims about this one way or another. We, don't, we just don't have that. So in that reality, humility right, and care must be taken. So here's, here's some reasons or some points as to why the book of Esther, um, in, in my opinion, before even reading the text itself, teaches us about humility. Um, yes. So the, I, I would like to get this out of the way, um, and this might sound almost as a cop-out, but I think it's important for us to those who believe that the Bible is infallible and the Word of God is inerrant. The Bible is a book of faith first and foremost. And this sounds kind of sketchy right now, but in the, uh, the next two points, um, I, I will try to kind of weave it together more. But first of all, the Bible is a book of faith first and foremost. The Bible has a lot of manuscripts, right? And I'm sure you've, we've read articles about this. You've seen studies. But the Bible has a lot of manuscripts. The books of the Bible has a lot of manuscripts, which basically mean they're copies, right, of the, the autograph or the original uh, writing. They also have archaeological discoveries, right? historical records that kind of point to and verify some of the events that are written within these texts, and various other evidences that quote-unquote validate it. That's true. But we have to remember that while those evidences that we see in this world, those physical evidences can be instrumental in strengthening and building our faith, it cannot replace it. They can't take the place of our faith. If your validation, if your understanding of the Bible, if your faith and dependence on the text that we believe is the Word of God 
If that depends on the archaeological evidences and, and, and these uh, manuscripts, then that, that will be the extent of your faith in the Bible. And guess what happens when new information comes out or old information goes out? Are you going to adjust your faith in the Bible every single time that kind of stuff happens? Right? So, actually, that's the first point. And, and some dangers in, in depending too much on archaeological findings and these uh, quote-unquote physical evidences for the Bible, though they are helpful in apologetics, depending on it too much is dangerous because, one, Archaeology as a field is not static. What we have uh, in our disposal in terms of information that we have dug up from the ground, from these pasts, they are not everything. First of all, we are very limited in that knowledge. Right? That is a truth that every archaeologist, every uh, biblical scholars know right? and can attest to. We are working with very limited knowledge. Right? And the field of archaeology will change throughout. Again, are you going to change your level of faith in the Bible every time some new information comes out or old information goes out? That's dangerous. There will always be, and this is the second point, different interpretations of archaeological discoveries. Just because something has archaeological support does not mean everyone agrees on it. <laughs> right? And, and that's the slippery slope is that no matter what we find, there will always be skeptics. No matter what we find, no matter how convincing the evidence is, there will always be people who don't believe in the Bible, who don't believe in these texts that we call the Word of God. So we have to be careful not to depend too much on archaeology. So even with better evidence or more evidence, the debate will go on. Right? As long as we don't have God himself come down to earth and tell us, hey, this book is legit, uh, which will not happen, there will always be a debate. So we have to, keep, uh, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't research, right? And you shouldn't think about these things critically. And you shouldn't look into uh, the archaeological or the, the evidential support for these books. However, if you don't do it with humility and if you don't do it with care, you're going to find out quickly that it's, it's, an, it's an unending game of how much more evidence can I find for this book. You will not reach faith with evidence. Um, so, second one is, and real quick, uh, we're about to run out of time. Our perspective uh, still depends on what we found. So, in other words, our theories that we have, we are working with what we have found so far. Again, if we find more things and if we find that our old information is wrong or needs to be adjusted, we will have to adjust our faith based on that, right? Our faith should not depend on just evidence or on just archaeological discoveries. Just because skeptics say that and theorize that Esther is such and such and such does not mean we need to adjust our faith in the book and our, our God's ability to preserve it for our needs. Um, and again, and I already mentioned this, our third point is we just don't know a lot. Right? There are a lot of things that we don't know. Uh, just because certain books have more archaeological and, and evidence and physical whatevers does not mean that we can be 100% certain of these books. And that's the, the same thing is true for um, books like Esther that is highly contended. What does that mean? 
That means that it comes down to our faith and our decision to believe that this is a word of God that has been passed down and has been preserved for us. It's not, it was never about evidence. It was never about information. It was about faith. That's why it goes back to the first point. The Bible, our purpose in reading the Bible is not to find evidence for it. Our purpose on this earth is not to prove God's real. Guess what? We can't. Many have tried for thousands of years, and that debate is still going on. Do you know why? Because we're looking in the wrong places. Our relationship with God, our relationship with His revelation and His word and His wisdom for us was never about knowledge. It was about faith. And we need to be aware of that as we challenge or as we face these challenges for uh, books like Little Walls, you know, between all of us with the, I think our time is better spent looking at the text and trying to see what the author or what the text itself has to teach for us. As long as that text is harmonious with the rest of the Bible, and I believe, and I think we can all agree Esther is, as long as that's true, then we have something to learn from it. And that is time much better spent than us griping with whether or not Esther is uh, archaeologically supported or not. Right? Um, so I think that's where harmony of the rest of the Bible with the canon is much more important. Um, and again, it takes a lot of intellectual humility. It is not easy for me to stand up here and tell you that Esther, one of the books of the Bible, is highly contended. And there's a lot of skeptics. And I can't just say definitively, hey, this is X, Y, Z. But nevertheless, I believe in the book of Esther. And I hope that you will too. And I hope that you will look at a story, and, or look at her story, and learn something from it. So, uh, we're out of time. But... Absence of God, uh, we'll look at this uh, when we study the book itself. Um, though God's not mentioned explicitly, right? there are hints. Right? There are things that point to the presence of God. And we'll look at that. Uh, some examples being Esther chapter 3, verse 8 and 4, 3. Uh, the whole Purim chicken or the egg. Did the feast come first or the, the events of Esther come first? Uh, if you were writing a fictional book to give credence to something that you wanted to make happen, wouldn't you mention God in the story to give it more credit? Why would you leave it ambiguous? Why would you risk that? Right. So that's the main argument against the whole Purim chicken or the egg, is that the author wasn't didn't seem to be very concerned about you know legitimizing, uh, legitimizing the the feast of Purim. Rather, it was more focused on the story of God working behind the scenes. And, and we'll talk about that throughout uh, the, the study of Esther. So Esther is not a godless book. Even though it does not mention the name of God, it's not godless. And it has God working uh, behind the scenes through the lives of these Jews in diaspora and uh, the dispersion throughout the Persian Empire and the foreign culture. So hopefully you will join us uh, back again next week. Um, we'll start looking at the book of Esther, and next time I'll have some handouts uh, for you know outlines and stuff like that to, for you to look at. So thank you very much. Hope you have a good Sunday.